Chapter Eleven of The Lady in Blue by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Torn Letters. Mueller had prophesied truly. Tony the Mysterious did cost him a restless night. Hour after hour passed while the veteran detective turned over in his mind all the possible combinations of human relationship that could give him a clue to the motive of this girl's conduct. The facts he knew, that she had aided the secret meeting of Elise Lehman with the unknown man, and that she had then helped this man in the masquerade which threw the police off the track and gave color to the suicide theory, these facts could not be explained altogether by the supposition that the man was Elise Lehman's lover. But if he were not, why should he have been goaded into killing her? Who else but a lover, angry at her desertion, could have had any cause for so fatal a rage? The fact that Tony's conduct did not fit into the easy and natural supposition was just what aroused Mueller's keenest ardor. Easy cases did not interest him, and this had seemed too easy at first. He fell asleep so late that it was long past his usual rising hour when he finally woke. Ossip's room was empty, and Mueller knew he would find the lad in the gray house. He did, but not exactly as he had expected. Ossip was sitting on the chopping block in the locked woodshed, cheerfully smoking a cigarette. Pollux was on guard outside in an attitude of extremely watchful waiting while Buchner was working nearby. "'Does this young man belong to you?' asked the gardener, as Mueller came up. "'I was taking no chances, so I locked him up. He must have got into the garden by climbing the gate.' "'Of course I did,' remarked Ossip lightly. "'How else could I get in? There wasn't anyone awake at three o'clock to open the gate for me.' "'Mercy on us! Were you here at three? exclaimed Mueller. How did you get out of the hotel without attracting attention at that hour? Down the water pipe from my window. Two stories up? Oh, Mr. Mueller, the walls of the Cara prison are higher than that, and it's well I came so early, for I hadn't but two hours to look for the papers before this chap got me by the collar. Which he had a perfect right to do, laughed Mueller. He didn't expect my messenger to come at that hour or in that way. No, sir, you said yourself I was to hold up anyone poking around here except on your orders, explained Buchner. Quite right. Keep that up. Did you find anything? Mueller asked of his young assistant. This much? The Russian opened his pocketbook and laid a tiny handful of torn bits of paper in Mueller's palm. It took me the two hours to gather those. Mueller reassured Buchner as to his actions of the morning and cautioned him anew to do the same by anyone whom he found trespassing on the grounds of the Grey House. The experienced detective hoped for some assistance in this puzzling mystery from the well-known psychology of the criminal which drives him back to the scene of his crime. Thus far it had been of little help to him, however, for the only person who had been seen lingering around the house was the innocent-looking young student whom Ossip had followed recently at Mueller's orders. He had ascertained that the lad's name was Franz Moser and that he was a pupil at the teacher's seminary in the town. Mueller and his assistant went into the house. The detective asked the housekeeper if she would give them some breakfast. Then he questioned her concerning Miss Lehman's luggage. Did she remember any small pieces the lady may have had? Oh, yes, sir. She had her big trunks and two hand pieces, a brown bag, and a light-colored valise, bound round with two black straps. I carried them upstairs myself, so I remember them well. What baggage did Tony have? Just a valise and a roll, sir. She's taken them away with her. But that reminds me there's something of hers still here. I did the laundry for the ladies, and two of Tony's handkerchiefs must have got among my own things in all the excitement. I found them after she'd gone and washed and ironed them. Maybe you'd better take them. 
Mrs. Diesler handed Mueller two handkerchiefs, which the detective studied carefully. They were of plain but good white linen, with a neat embroidered monogram in one corner. The letters were A.K. A.K.? Antonia K.? That's one step forward, thought Mueller. Then he said aloud, Did Tony always look so ill? Oh, no, sir. She was a fine, healthy-looking young woman when she came here. It's only since those dreadful things happened that she looked so miserable. I'm sure I don't wonder at it. Nor I. Remember, I like my tea, good and strong. Yes, sir. Oh, I nearly forgot. There was a gentleman here last night wanted to get in and get up to the dead lady's rooms. You didn't let him in? No, sir, but it was hard keeping him out. I thought I'd have to call Buchner once. He looked as if he was going to push me aside and go in. And he was a strong-looking young man, too. I was most afraid of him. He was so excited, although he was well-dressed and not like a rough at all. What did you tell him? asked Mueller quickly. I told him you were in charge and that he could see you at the hotel. You didn't tell him anything more? No, sir. The less those stories get about, the better for me. Quite so. What sort of a looking man was he? Why, young and strong-looking and nicely dressed. He thought I'd take money to let him in, too. But then I got angry and shut the gate on him. Good. But if he comes while I am here, you can let him up. And if he comes when I am not here, yes, let him go up and lock him in the room. Then send Buchner for me at once in a cab. Oh, Mr. Mueller, I'd be scared. I may leave my young friend here to protect you. Anyway, I want to see this man very much. Mueller's mind went back to the little incident at the hotel the previous evening, and he decided to make the acquaintance of this Mr. George Branchley. If it were he who had tried to bribe and terrorize an old woman in his anxiety to get into the gray house, and yet lacked courage to speak to a detective, the reasons for his being there might prove worth investigating. If it were Goldie Boy? Please open the door, Ossop. The key is in my right coat pocket, said Mueller, when he realized they were standing in front of the corner room. He went straight to the table in the bay window. Antonia Kay, he murmured. Her name probably is Antonia, Tony for short. It's too risky to take another given name. You're so apt to overhear it. But she was not Antonia Schreiner. You might look for the traveling bags in the bedroom closet, Ossop. I'll puzzle out these papers. Ossop returned in a few minutes with one brown bag. Seeing that his master was already absorbed in his task of sorting the bits of torn paper, the young Russian stood motionless. His great dark eyes alone seemed alive. They swept the room carefully, taking in every detail. Once the boy shuddered and turned his eyes away hastily. They had fallen on the bloodstained dagger, wakening terrible memories of the past that had darkened his young years. To avoid the unpleasant sight, Ossip looked down at the carpet. Then he looked again, with a fixed stare of sudden interest. When Mueller looked up from his papers, his young assistant was crouching on the floor, carefully measuring the straight red-brown line that ended in the heart of a big yellow rose. The old detective looked at the boy with a pleased smile. One of his greatest pleasures in life was to discover, and then to train, a mind akin to his own, a mind gifted with the power to see keenly and to reason on the things seen. Ossip felt his master's eye on him and rose to his feet, blushing deeply. "'Of course you've seen this, sir?' he asked timidly. "'Yes, that first put me on the right trail,' replied Mueller. "'What have you seen now?' Ossip made a quick movement toward the fireplace. It was not a genuine open grate of the English type, but the usual continental tiled stove, only in this case the stove had been built in the form of a Renaissance mantle. The firebox had the usual entrance on the narrow side of the stove, but was open toward the room and protected by a handsome brass railing 
so that the fire could be seen as in a grate. Ossop stood staring at the stove for a minute or two. Then he spoke, slow and timidly. You've seen that too, sir, of course? I mean, that there are papers in the stove? Then the boy blushed again as he saw a wave of deep color shoot up the old detective's cheeks. But Joseph Mueller was too big a man to lie to save his face. No, I did not see it, he admitted frankly. I didn't even see the opening on the side of the stove. My eyes are getting old like the rest of me, Ossip. I need youth beside me. Shall I? began Ossip. But Mueller cut in quickly. No, one thing at a time. We tackle the stove later. I must finish this now. The returns from Mueller's labor with the bits of paper were not great. He was disappointed in that he had expected or hoped to find the torn letter was from a man. But what bits of the writing were decipherable were clearly penned by a woman. The scent that still lingered about the paper was too strong to be called refined, and the writing was as inelegant as the style and the orthography. Here and there only could a full sentence be pieced together. Otherwise, it was only scattered words. In Venice, on, I couldn't love that pie face. Sure weak in the upper story. Don't see why you have to. Probably never see you again. If this was the letter that had so upset Elise Lehman when she received it a day or so before her death, it must in some way concern Edmund Walroth, and possibly also Goldie Boy. Mueller wondered whether the writer was alluding to her friend's aristocratic betrothed with the words pie-face and weak in the upper story. I'm getting old, sighed Mueller. There may be some clue in this letter, but my brain doesn't leap to it as it once did. I found only one bag, said Ossip as Mueller looked over at him. There is no valise there. Then we have one thing to go by. We must find that valise or some trace of a man who was seen carrying it, and a woman whose initials are A.K. Now for the stove. Ossip poked into the dark interior of the firebox and brought out the usual assortment of odds and ends that are apt to be thrown into a stove during the summer months. There was a broken ivory paper knife, a small torn lampshade, bonbon papers, scraps of newspapers, and a number of torn letters. These last Ossip laid carefully to one side until he had them all together. Then he handed them up to Mueller, who smoothed them out. There were in all three sheets of writing paper, of three different colors, and they had been just torn through once. One seemed part of another letter, a second sheet. It began near the top, without any heading. It's beastly dull in this old hole. I wish you'd— Then the pen sputtered so badly that the writer had torn the sheet and thrown it away. The writing was Elise Layman's. The next letter, on rose-tinted paper, began solemnly with a quotation and therein lies the magic power of love that it ennobles with its lightest breath. Grizparzer, Sappho, 1.5. Nothing like being definite, murmured Mueller. The letter read, My own dearly beloved Edmund, when will those happy days come again, the days when you can be with me? A spot, as if from a finger stained with moist chocolate, put an end to this effusion. The third letter on very heavy light green paper began, Honey bunch, do be good again. I know you won't do anything to spoil my good luck. A big blot was the reason for tearing up this sheet. Mueller threw the first two letters back on the heap of litter and looked at the third again. It was the only one of any importance, for it proved that Elise Lehman was still corresponding with a former lover, even after her official engagement to Baron Walroth, and it proved also that this lover was angry and had made some threat that disturbed the girl. That fits the theory of the discarded lover's anger, thought Mueller. But then there is Tony. This young woman is very troublesome. Very. The detective leaned back in his chair while a sentence in Goldie Boy's letter and one on the torn scraps from the garden 
pieced themselves together in his mind to a clearer line of thought. The firm must send me off in an opposite direction, wrote the lover, and the friend spoke of someone who was in Venice on, if it was on business, it might be Goldie Boy, and if Goldie Boy was in Venice, he would be easier to locate there, being a foreigner, than he would be in his own country. But if Goldie Boy was in Venice, who was the excited young man who tried to force his way in last evening? Of course he might have come home from Venice on the news of Elise Lehman's death. We'll investigate that young man, and then, if need be, we can go to Venice. When he came to this spot in his thoughts, Mueller rose. We can go now. I may have to leave Salzburg tonight. Ossip did not speak, but his eyes asked a question. Mueller locked the door and handed the key to the boy before he spoke again. You are to stay here, in this house. I still hope that one or the other of those we seek, the man or the woman, may come back here. If I do find the man elsewhere, you might find the woman or some trace of her. It would help me greatly. Ossip reddened with pride and delight, but grew pale again as Mueller continued. It is a true saying that he who has shed blood is drawn back, often against his will, to the scene of his crime. You know how true, from your own experience. Oh, Mr. Mueller, why did you remind me? To spur you on to greater effort, replied Mueller, resting his hand on the boy's shoulder. We do not conquer our sins by trying to forget them, but by facing them bravely and rising superior to the memory. I shall need you more and more, Ossip, and I want you to become a worthwhile man and dedicate yourself to the service of justice. If you do this, you will make me glad of my moment of weakness that day a year ago when I helped out with the law of your country. But don't ever let me feel sorry that I took you from Nikola Pludov's barn. Ossip's big eyes, clear to the depths now, looked straight at his master. You shall never repent it, Mr. Mueller, he replied solemnly. I will serve justice and make up a thousandfold for my sin. All I ask is hard work. Men with such memories deserve nothing else and should be thankful for that. I am thankful. Come, come now, keep a cool head, soothed Mueller. We've tackled a far more difficult job here than I thought at first. We must keep calm and have all our wits about us. And let me tell you, our work is full of fascination and can bring the sweetness of triumph. It can make us forget much. The last words were spoken low, and Mueller's eyes looked off into distance. The young Russian remembered snatches of stories heard concerning Mueller's life, of how early personal misfortune had given the world a great detective because this man had been ostracized from the everyday walks of life. The impressionable boy silently vowed that he, too, would let the errors of his youth lead him into the paths of service. They walked downstairs without another word, and sat down at Mrs. Diesler's invitingly cheery breakfast table. "'You won't be alone in the house now, Mrs. Diesler,' began Mueller, sipping his tea. "'I'm going to leave my young friend Ossip Julef here to keep you company. He can have Tony's room.' Mrs. Diesler tried to look pleased, but she did not like the young man's look. He was too foreign for her taste. Also, she preferred people who came and went by the door rather than by windows and walls, but she promised to make things comfortable for him. When Mueller returned to the hotel, he learned that the blonde young man, George Branchley, had gone out. He still retained his room, however. The clerk at the desk, who knew Mueller's position, told the detective that he thought the man was a traveling salesman for a jewelry house or something similar. Mueller gave him some instructions and then took the letters that were waiting for him. Among them was a long letter from Walter Thorne. A stout, red-faced individual who had been standing in the hall came up at the clerk's nod and introduced himself as a cab driver who had been sent to see Mr. Mueller from police headquarters. It was he who had taken the couple to the Grey House on the evening of May 29th. 
Mueller took the man to his room and had him repeat the story he had narrated under oath at headquarters. Yes, sir, it was me. I was driving in slow. I'd been out across the river, and just as I was passing the artillery barracks, I see a young woman coming toward me and waving her hand at me. I stop, and up she comes with another lady, all dressed up swell, in a light dress and dark cloak. Did you see this lady's face? asked Mueller. No, she had a powerful big hat on and a heavy veil, and she was hanging onto the veil as if it were some trouble to keep her hat on, which I dare say it was, cause there was some wind that night. What time was it when they took your cab? It must have been about quarter past ten, I'm thinking, cause I heard a church clock strike just before that. The tall lady didn't say a word till they got into the cab. Then they both talked a lot, and I remember thinking what a deep voice the tall lady had, cause I could hear it every now and then, and it was different from the other one, from the young woman that hailed me. Did you notice anything more about the two? No, sir. We drove to the gray house, and the tall lady went right in. The other, she paid my fare, and talked to an old woman who came out and opened the gate for them. Didn't it occur to you, asked Mueller, that there may have been some connection between this drive and the suicide of the young lady in the gray house that very same night? No, sir. The man shook his head. I thought they was just going home like so many people that time of night. If I thought anything about it, I'd a gone to the police before now, and not had em come hunt for me like I'd been doing something wrong. Pie-face, thought Mueller, remembering the letter of the garden. This time the words seemed to fit. He dismissed the cabman and opened Walter Thorne's long letter. The painter went over in detail all he had seen in the gray house and the impressions he had received there. I'm sorry I can't be of any more assistance, the letter went on. I have no suggestion to make that can be of any value at all. You ask for information as to any mutual acquaintances my cousin and his fiancée might have had. That question is easily answered. My cousin, always of frail health, has lived very quietly and spent much time in the South. His mother, Baroness Walroth, is one of the most exclusive of Vienna's wealthy women, and particularly since the death of her husband, she has devoted herself so entirely to her son that she might almost be said to have dropped out of society altogether. The few friends who come to her formal dinners are people for whom such a girl as Elise Lehman simply does not exist, the women, that is, and the men are most of them old enough to be counted out in this matter. When they are at home, my aunt and her son give a musical evening now and then to a small and select gathering. Hubert Lore, Elise's brother, is a frequent performer at these affairs. He is a gifted composer and was a protege of the late Baron Walroth, who gave him his education. This, with one exception, is the only connection between Elise Lehman and my cousin's home circle. The exception is a young man by the name of Richard Volkner, son of a business friend of my uncle. The two families were very intimate at one time, but there has been a coolness between them of late due to a falling out between the two young men. To my great astonishment, I learned only yesterday that my cousin Edmund had had a duel with Richard Volkner sometime during the past winter, and that the cause of it was a remark Volkner had made concerning Elise Lehman. It seems he had been a lover of the dead girl at one time. Edmund must have more temperament than I have given him credit for, or Volkner must have angered him greatly. Anyway, the upshot was a pistol duel. My cousin was not hurt, but Volkner was badly wounded, and is still in the South, somewhere in Italy, I think, recuperating. Neither my aunt or Volkner's parents know anything of this duel. Lochner is supposed to be recuperating from an attack of influenza. I am telling you this in detail, for I do not want you to go off on a false trail. You may hear something of Richard Faulkner's former affair with the layman girl, and you may also hear about the duel. But my cousin does not think that Richard Faulkner can possibly have anything to do with the murder. He has been in Italy since early in the year, 
and his connection with elise is a matter of a year or so back and was long over before edmund met the girl my cousin is sure of this he is still terribly upset over the sad affair and i have persuaded him to go to berlin with me for a time we will remain there and i am at your disposal whenever you need me walter thorne hm walroth had a duel with this young blood eh thought muller the baron is not quite such a pie-face as people seem to think elise layman was the cause of the duel and this young man is somewhere in italy now is it he who is in venice on a vacation and in spite of professor thorne's protestation i believe he thinks or did think richard Faulkner guilty he feels relieved now that he hears the young man is in italy but italy is not so very far away when money is no object the professor would hate to think he had set me on to catch a man of his own class they all prefer some nameless tramp natural i suppose still i think i'll take a run down to venice and call on this young Volkner. he can't be goldie boy for he is a man of wealth and breeding but that would make him more the sort that a girl like tony would do so much for i'll take a look at him muller studied the railway guide and noted down the time of the night express for the south then he called a cab and drove to the artillery barracks telling the driver to wait he disappeared behind the big building in the direction of the river bank End of chapter 11